0: Love Talk Radio.
1: Oh. We're nice. Got the Facebook realm. Got the Vibe Radio Network realm. Cheers, everybody. mm mm-hmm. Brownie. I cheered
2: with a brownie. That's fair. A little loud tonight. My, my, my
1: tea's a little too hot to cheer with right now. Oh. Uh, yeah. Hi, Patrick. Good evening. Oh, shoot. I didn't turn the light on, but my Tonight.
2: Tonight. We all know that's to light-up story. Okay. All right. So, things we've
1: been doing. Yeah. <laughs>
2: what?
0: Um.
1: October is coming.
0: We're
1: prepping. October's basically already here. Kind of starts almost this week for us. This week's gonna be a. Little... <laughs> this week's gonna be a little crazy. It's, that's okay. That's a good thing. And um, our next show will be in three weeks. October 16th. October 16th, because... It's October. It's October, and there is just absolutely no way that we can prep and do a show in two weeks' time from now. So, not going to happen. first two weeks of October are insane. Yeah. Year. It's kind of... Still, I think the first two weeks might be crazier than the end of the month, but... Well, I mean, I think do with a crazy... Entire month. I mean, that's usually means good for business, right? We might not have our sanity to uh, spare at the end of all that, but hey. Yeah. Uh, All right. So,
0: uh,
2: quick announcement because this is what we've been sitting on.
1: October twelfth. Oh wow! Yeah, we haven't really announced that yet. Well, I mean,
0: we've, We've we've hinted at
1: it. We've hinted at it, and I did post on social media about it.
0: Like just post, post. Yeah.
2: But October 12th, we have a special event at the Branch Museum. They are having their Haunted Infant House, and we've been asking them to tell stories there. Um, the open house is free, but our storytelling is a ticketed event that you have to
1: pre-purchase tickets. Yep, but tickets are only 20 bucks, which is uh, honestly not too bad or what you're going to get that money You're going to get um, a selection the,
2: of stories from across yeah. all of our tours.
1: Yep, it's the Haunted Houses of Historic Haunted Homes of Richmond. Yeah. So we got to go around inside the Branch Museum and t- share some spooky stories yeah. for maybe about an hour. Yeah. And then uh, have a little Q&A. Yeah, and then round everybody up but, and yeah, a little Q&A afterwards yeah. inside the cozy and kind of a little bit creepy confines of the Branch Museum. Yeah. It's an absolutely beautiful building.
2: It is absolutely wonderful. Each of the uh, rooms that we have or are areas that we have selected for storytelling represent each of the... Houses and we're that gonna, we're talking about. Yeah. Uh They also will have um, safe singing and. Uh,
1: there will be a tarot card reader. Tarot reader.
2: And, be costume um, contest. There'll be a musician there.
1: What was that musician? Or the art the, 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 the mu- instrument? I don't remember. Um, it's something. It's kind. Of, it's some, one of those instruments that gives off of like a really kind of creepy, noise. Cre- creepy noise. It's beautiful but creepy. It, yeah. It's going to be cool. So you can do that, um, and oh, rest in pieces. Yes.
0: They're going to be there.
1: They're going to be there bending. Uh, we're going to have a little table doing some vending stuff as well. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, come on out to the branch museum. Yeah, whether you just want to go to the open house, the open house is free, but you do have to register. Or uh, you can again tag along for the, uh, the storytelling bit as well, which uh, that's just a uh, twenty dollars ticket. But tickets for um, just to reserve to come for the open house or for and or the, mm-hmm. the tour part. Um, you can go and purchase those at the Branch Museums website. Yeah. Um, and if you want an easy link to that, you can go to hauntsrichmond.com, and I do have a link like right up at the top of our homepage, so it'll take you there as well. So, so
2: that is what we have been sitting on. Yep. And, uh, we have just gotten out panels for um, uh, Nightmare, Nightmare or Weekend,
1: which is the <laughs> starts the day after the Branch Museum event.
2: Uh, so that we actually have panels uh, at 1:15 and at 7:15 on Saturday, and then again
1: at 12:30 on Sunday. Yep. Yeah. So first one is fifty haunted dolls. The second one, Saturday evening, is going to be werewolves, and uh, Sunday around lunchtime is going to be about vampires. Yep. So all kinds of good stuff. But yeah, and you so you can come check out our panels, and we will be vending at on um, the Nightmare Weekend all weekend as well. So, plus tours that weekend. Plus tours, because of course we're doing tours. We're always doing tours. <laughs> so always tours to be had. But uh, yeah, you can come on out and see us basically any night of the week for the next month and a half-ish. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. All
2: right.
1: So in the meantime, we do have a little bit of fun to get to you for this evening. Yes, be- and we will have a birthday on our next Facebook Live, it'll be Patrick's birthday. Okay? Uh, I, think it's, I think it's Patrick's <laughs> brother's birthday. Oh. I just heard that as it was growing uh, October 16th is my, oh, my birthday and my brother's birthday. Oh, are you twins? I didn't know that. Or is it just a coincidence? Anyways, I digress. I'll let you go, to, uh, go ahead and respond to that in the comments. In the meantime, haunted Louisiana. Now, let, I will preface this by saying we are only just scratching the surface. Louisiana is haunted as all get out, and we have, of course, talked about haunted Louisiana numerous times on numerous shows before.
0: Yes. So.
1: And um, we had customers from Louisiana last week, and
2: went, yeah, there's a no place in Louisiana that's not haunted. Yeah. yeah. So, so that just confirmed it.
1: So, but we're going to go ahead and do our little road trip across Louisiana, and uh, tonight, uh, let's just go ahead and give a little preface here. So. The this uh, this state on the Gulf Coast certainly has a personality all its own. Now, when one imagines Louisiana, you get kind of conjure images of like the French Quarter and the Bayou, and uh, likely some of the are some of the first things that come to mind for you. And then really, big snakes and alligators. Yeah, it's a place that is both very wild and very refined in turn. It's kind of it's a it's a contradiction unto itself. So, really, kind of um, you know. Very, very interesting, very complex history that this state has, and uh, this history is sometimes very beautiful, sometimes outright horrifying, but it's certainly always curious, and it's against this backdrop where we have lots of tales of the paranormal and the bizarre, or just the sampling of which we have for you here this evening. Now, we're going to start tonight's stories on the banks of the Mississippi River, as you do about halfway between the capital city of Baton Rouge and the infamous New Orleans. Now here, tucked away on a sharp bend in the river is the elegant Humas House and Gardens. With its history that dates back centuries, the land that now makes up the Humas House Plantation and Gardens was first inhabited by the Humas Indians as they took advantage of the fertile lands to grow a variety of crops and to hunt the abundant wildlife. By the early 1700s, this prime tract of land had attracted the attention of European settlers, and by the mid-1700s, they had pretty much appropriated that land from the native people. By the early 1800s, the fertile lands had been cultivated into a sugar uh, cane plantation. In the aftermath of the Louisiana Purchase in 1803, the Humas, as it came to be called, Uh, was purchased by Daniel Clark, who built a sugar mill on the river and kicked off the era of the sugar barons. The Humas would change hands several times in the decade ahead, and by the time of the Civil War, it was one of the largest estates of its kind with about 12,000 acres and four sugar mills. Grimly worked off the backs of about 750 enslaved people. At its heart was the impressive two-and-a-half-story Greek Revival mansion that was built in 1840, and that still stands today. In the aftermath of the Civil War, it became near impossible to manage the vast holding, and the land was gradually subdivided and sold off. The beautiful home was slip into disrepair, suffering through the Mississippi River flood of 1927 and continuing to deteriorate through the Great Depression. A new owner, Dr. Ger- George Crozet, Owner. Uh, owner. Owner, there um, you go. I haven't even had a sip of this yet. So, I know. This is why like, what? A <laughs> new owner, Dr. George Cruz purchased the estate in 1940 and proceeded to restore the home and gardens. It would prove to be an ongoing effort, and the current owner, Kevin Kelly, who purchased the estate in 2003, continues to maintain the home and gardens to this day. So he has opened the Humas to guest and events, it does remain his private residence in the modern day. All right, so here comes a fun, fun, creepy story. (laughs) So in the days before the river levee was built up to its current considerable size, the oak tree alley that has welcomed visitors to the Humas for generations stretched to the riverfront. John Burnside, the colorful bachelor who owned the Humas in the late 1800s, lovingly referred to these giant leafy sentinels as the gentleman. The reference carried on for decades until the need for flood control took precedence over the magnificent trees. The legend and the irony begins with the great flood of 1927 when the area around Huma's house was inundated for several weeks. Kuma's house located on high ground was spared, an island in a sea of misery and suffering that wreaked havoc on lives, property, and the economy all along the Big River. A few short years after the Great Flood came the Great Depression, which sparked FDR's New Deal. One of the most notable aspects of the New Deal was the Works Progress Administration, the WPA, which created a variety of government-sponsored jobs across the country for those who lost so much in the economic turmoil. Among the projects taken on by the WPA was the construction of a new and higher levy. As progress marched down the river, it also marched up the bank towards the once great homes along River Road, including Kumas House, which was then uh, unoccupied and out of the sugar business. Only Mr. Green, the caretaker, and his wife lived on the property, making uh, their home in the same house near the East Gate that is now used as the bridal uh, cottage. Despite the national economic depression and decline in plantation life, The gentlemen stood even taller than the day Burnside named them over a half a century earlier. But as the levee construction crews approached, their big saws brought gentlemen after gentlemen crashing to the ground. As the great trees fell, the levees rose higher and the surrounding roads were paved. The work was hard and dangerous, and 16 men died out on the big bend in the river that sweeps across the front of the Humas House property all perished after concocting a scheme to profit by floating the carcasses of Scumas House's giant giant oaks downriver to be milled in New Orleans. There were 16 profiteers set off aboard the backs of the big tree trunks. Their bodies were never recovered. It was less than a week after the work crew felled the last of the the gentlemen that Mrs. Green returned from a trip to the outhouse wrought with fear and animated by wild-eyed hysterics as she shook her dazed husband from their bed. Insert crazy screen here. As the couple wobbled (laughs) onto the front porch of the caretaker's cabin, neither could believe their eyes. Literally overnight, the eight remaining gentlemen, which had maintained their stately symmetry through hurricanes, droughts, floods, and seasons of subtropical pestilence, had reshaped themselves into grotesque skulls of grief and agony, heads bowed and limbs drooped like mourners at a funeral. The engineers assigned to the project cited a change in the water table, trauma from heavy equipment in trucks and other construction factors for the overnight transformation. But the Greens, many long-time, many longtime local residents and members of the native Pumas tribe, insisted that the healthy remainder of the Corps of the gentlemen became disfigured that cool fall night when they were occupied by wandering spirits of the lost workmen who desecrated their fallen brothers. The impressive ancient oaks that you will encounter on the property today are the hardiest of that original cadre of gentlemen which stretched up from the river's edge to Humas' house and on the Humas Indian village to the north. Yep. Don't mess with the tree spirits. Nope. Now, that is not the only creepy thing to have happened here. We also have... uh, a little bit more of a, uh, another tale. Let's just say it's another tale. Now, when Kevin Kelly purchased Tumas House Plantation and Gardens at auction in the late spring of 2003, the house had been off the tourism radar for a couple of years and was a relatively quiet participant in the tourism trade even before that. The crown jewel of Louisiana's River Road had lost its luster many, many years ago. Still grand in scale, but quiet on a sort, uh, in a sort of slumber. When Kelly began his transformation of the property in the summer of that year, no part of the once grand mansion was left untouched. Every detail was scrubbed, scraped, and manicured to bring back as much of the original luster as possible. That said, determining what was original could be a challenge at times, because so many generations of owners brought their own additions and modifications to the great home. The solution was to highlight features from the various owners to tell not a single story, but to rather show the way HUMAS House had evolved over the years. When all was said and done, HUMAS House was not only ready to serve as Kevin Kelly's home, but to welcome a new generation of visitors, history seekers, and merrymakers with its grandeur. It had made for quite an extensive project. The process was quite destructive, to say the least. Literally no stone on the property was left unturned, and the process, some say, a spirit was awakened. A worker from the electrician's crew was the first to report that he had seen a young girl descending the freestanding stairway and later in the large central hall. His concern expressed to his co-workers that the house was a construction zone and unsafe for children, especially for a girl of age maybe 7 to 10. Working into the evening hours, two others in the crew saw the little girl in the blue dress with dark eyes and brunette hair, but before they could confront her, she was gone. A cursory check of the legion of workers who came and went each day produced no identity for the little girl or any claim to her. As work wound to a conclusion, no other sightings occurred. In turn, between the completion of the renovation and work on the grounds to prepare the property for the arrival of tourists, The house was quiet for a few weeks. In the excitement of bringing the house back to life for the public, the mystery of the little girl was set aside, out of mind for those at the house welcoming visitors, guiding guests, and maintaining the house and gardens. Restored to its crown jewel status, Kuma's house is again filled with activity. Amid the hustle and bustle, there was another visitor in the hallway and on the stairs, according to tour guides and guests, who have seen the little girl in the blue dress with dark eyes and brown hair. She's usually sighted in the morning or later in the afternoon. She seems curious about all the activity, all the people, but disappears when approached. There is evidence in the history of the house to suggest her identity. In 1848, the young daughter of Colonel John Preston was the belle of Humas House, loved by all who worked and visited there for her sunny personality. Her lively games of tag in the gardens or hide-and-seek in the great house filled the plantation with the happy giggles and delightful squeals of youth. Then suddenly, that year, she fell gravely ill. The family left for Columbia, South Carolina, where the young girl soon died. The family never returned to Humas' house, and those back in Louisiana, who knew her and her love of the plantation, mourned at their loss. Around 1900, another daughter of Humas' house died, this time on the plantation. Colonel William Poacher Miles and his wife Harriet lost their daughter to illness at age seven. She was laid to rest in the family cemetery, known for its ornate Gothic fence located down by the river. The cemetery disappeared, and several of the grave sites were disturbed when the levee was built after the 1927 flood. The graveyard would today be located under the levee and out onto the back which is that kind of stretch of land that is actually between the levee and the uh, water in the river when the river's at low tide. So a little stretch of land there. But anyways, so this is where the graveyard is today. It's out there basically on the riverbank. Uh, um, we all know what happens when you
2: disturb graves, build on top of them. Yeah. Cover them
1: in the water. Yeah. So while well, the uh, remains of those dead may be long gone today or certainly quite stirred mm-hmm. oh, up, uh, perhaps their spirits, not quite so much. Yeah. But, I mean what you see when you look at the pictures of this place. Yeah, yeah, absolutely stunning. And, yeah, smack between Baton Rouge and New Orleans. So uh, if you're ever down there and you want to go ahead and get out into the uh, the countryside a little bit, if you will,
0: there you go.
2: Yeah. All right, so we're going to move to the northwest corner of Louisiana, closer to the border with Texas. And this is where we find the blue colour city of Shrewport it was initially developed as a settlement at the junction of the Red River and the Texas Trail in the mid 1830s. <coughs> the
0: city
2: has re ah Ooh, that hurt. Anyway, the city has reinvented itself many times over the years, and it has turned uh, in turn has had strong ties to Texas, River Boat Trade, and even served as capital of Louisiana between 1853. In 1865 after the preceding capital city, but that Rouge and Epilogue were occupied by the Union Army. And post-Civil War era, Shaveport would be known for its ties to the oil industry and the early days of blues music and hosting one of the longest serving military airfields at Sparstale Air Force Base. As the city's fortunes rose and fell over the years, it added a number of notable structures to its landscape, including the Shreveport Municipal Auditorium. This beautiful art deco and modernish style structure has the distinction of being listed on the National Register of Historic Places, the National Register of Historic Landmarks, and it serves as one of the cornerstones of Shreveport's Commercial Historic District. <laughs> Besides being recognized as a fantastic example of, of art deco and modernism style of architecture, the Municipal Auditorium has a cherished community and civic center that offers space for many kinds of social and cultural activities and conventions as well. It is built to last for centuries and to be relevant for many years to come. And this is held true to its purpose, as its large auditorium still hosts all kinds of performances today, including musical performances, concerts, sporting events, and much, much more. <coughs> Excuse me, folks. So how did Shreveport decide to build such a structure? Well, in 1927, the mayor of Shreveport at that time was Lee and Thomas. Him, along with city council, decided that the town needed a civic center for activities for the public and private events. They also decided that a new landmark should serve as a uh, memory to soldiers that fought in the Great War. <laughs> they engaged local architects and contractors to carry out their vision. And it's fair to say they did an excellent job of following through on the concept. They understood the assignment. Since the day that day inside it opened, the auditorium was a favorite among first, first amongst the locals for the performance tours, cultural events, high school graduations, films, socials, and business events, and anything else needed to space to offer activities. It became the place to be on a Saturday night in tree sports. The Shreveport Municipal Auditorium was a colorblind when it came to giving artists an opportunity to perform here. Notable African-American artists to perform here include blues musician Huddy Ledbetter, James Brown, Aretha Franklin, Bobby Blue Valant, and BB King. During World War II, the Shreveport Municipal Auditorium did its part and it was used as a temporary barracks for soldiers. At the end of World War II, the Shreveport Municipal Auditorium returned to entertaining people, and it was one Maria Curran show in particular that launched the landmark and country music to national prominence. The Louisiana Hayride was a wildly popular program that quickly came to be broadcast nationally, on top performing in front of a live audience at Shreveport Municipal Auditorium. The and Radio Show premiered at 8 p.m. on April 3rd of 1948. But the inaugural performers that included the Bales Brothers, the Four Deacons, Johnny and the Jack, and the Tennessee Mount Boys, with Miss Kitty Wells. Charlie Kinsey and the T- Tennessee Ridge Runners, Harvey Smith and the Ozark Mountaineers, Abby Hamilton's band, the Mercer Brothers, and Tex Grinsley and the Tex- Texas Playboys. Louisiana Hayride was Louis- Louisiana's answer to the Tennessee's Grand Ole Opry. The different musical cultures of Shreveport came together and brought the people, people bought tickets for 60 cents for adults and 30 cents for kids to hear a variety of southern country music. The Louisiana Henry Ride played for a major role in country music's continuing in evolution and increasing its popularity in the years following World War II. Shreveport was quickly becoming the folk music center of the Southwest. Country music enthusiasts from eastern Texas and southern Arkansas joined from folks from Shreveport and Western Louisiana to enjoy and promote this live show. A lot of country artists got to start here. An unknown Hank Williams got a treasure and a way to boost his confidence by performing in front of an audience who loved him for a 10-month sit at the Hayride. Another truck driver-slash-singer also got a start here singing rockabilly. you've heard of him. Elvis Presley. <laughs> He had a few months sitting performing here, bringing a style of music that drew in a whole new generation of country and rock music fans. The Louisiana Jammer weekly performances ended in 1960, but it did continue on a special occasion for a special event for another decade. Since the 1960s, the well maintained and the Luxury Municipal Auditorium was and still is an active source of the performing arts concerts, sports events, social events like graduations, and anything else that the folks of Freeport and surrounding communities love and desire. <coughs> now, with all that energy that went into that building and performed in that building, you can guess it's one of the most haunted buildings in northern Louisiana. Well, not all of them have uh, made themselves known to guests and employees. Some of them, they're still nameless. They manifest as audible disembodied voices inside the auditorium. The sounds of a woman moaning and weeping in the basement bathroom. There are doors that open and close by themselves, the most visible of which is the one that overlooks the foyer. Some of the forces are a little more hands-on. Well, let's just say people will feel an unseen person pushing by them, while others receive an attention-getting grabbing of the top of the shoulder as well. Beyond the unknown spirits here, there's a man who appears to work in overalls. That's a shoulder, not head. I still got your attention. <laughs> Just don't pull my hair. I won't. Thank you. Anyway, uh, he appears at work overall. So he gives the impression that he was with the military. He's affectionately, uh, excuse me, affectionately known as Sarge. There's the boy. I did. Sarge is generally denying, but he can get a little over-friendly at times. He loves women. He loves to show up and paint their hair. He likes to stroke their long hair. He likes to run his hand over short, spiky hair. He also likes to take advantage of his spirited status by taking uh, in the private performances of watching show rehearsals from the audience. It's likely that Sarge was the man that was housed here during World War II, Otherwise, that's a debate why he may have returned to the site to linger on for generations since. Then there's a little girl in the blue dress. Because I have a little girl in the blue dresses. Yeah, tonight. it must be a Louisiana thing. Thank you. Anyway, uh, she is cute as a button, and she certainly has given, her, given quite a few people a bit of a scare. She tends to hang out in the auditorium. She will try to play like peekaboo with anybody who casts, catches a glimpse of her. Employees are particularly prone to falling into her game as they will often mistake her for a trespasser when they're not supposed to see any guests in the building. Of course, when they round the corner or search down a row of chairs, looking for the child who doesn't belong, they don't find anything, and then have the unsettling realization that a ghost is toying with them. (laughs) Now, we also have a very familiar spirit, one whose name you certainly know and one who we've talked about just a few months ago in our Haunted Tennessee episode, The legendary Hank Williams has been reported to return to Shreveport Municipal Auditorium where he first gained the confidence to share his talents in front of a live audience. He has been seen by employees and guests alike and has made himself known at the Ryman Auditorium in downtown Nashville. Some people like to think the king himself is lingering on in the auditorium, but true guy, Teresa Michaels, believes that's just wishful thinking, folks, while some will say Elvis has not left the building. There's no evidence to suggest he actually still hangs out in the building. So, well, uh, you have a good chance to encounter a different spirit at Shreveport New Explosion. You might want to look for Elvis elsewhere. <laughs> Area 51, maybe. <laughs> just saying.
1: You can find lots of them all over Vegas.
2: I mean, men in black. Elvis <laughs> is my home. That was, just a... <laughs> <laughs> that was a great life. That is.
1: All right, So, I know I did this to myself. So, For our next stop, we're going to move south along the border with Texas until we hit the city of Lake Charles, just a short distance before reaching the Gulf Coast. Here lies the Kaleskoos Courthouse. There's any tourist passing by, it's just a regular court building. But when the history of this noteworthy monument is applied, you will understand the particularity of it. Tony Joe Henry was born Annie Beatrice McQuiston. McQuiston. McQuiston.
2: We have some fun names this time.
1: I see why she decided to change her name. Yes.
2: Yeah. Uh, anyway. We're just gonna call her Harry Joe. That's what she changed it to. Tony Joe. Tony Joe. Tony
1: Joe. Anyway, <laughs> she was born on January third of nineteen fifteen. Even in her early life, Tony Joe was no stranger to tragedy, as her mother passed away from tuberculosis when she was just a child. As a teenager, Tony Joe worked in a factory to help support her family. However, when her foreman discovered that her mother passed from tuberculosis, he terminated her for fear of having an employee that could expose other workers to the illness. When Tony Joe delivered the news to her father, he became abusive and beat her. Eager to escape her father's abuse, Tony Joe left home and became dependent on herself to make a living, resorting to any possible method of making money, including selling her body. With her new profession came a new identity, and Annie Beatrice McQuiston took on the name Tony Joe Hood. After a brief period working on the streets in Louisiana, Tony Joe picked up employment at a local brothel where she gained a few regular patrons. Among these patrons was a man named Claude Henry, described as a down-on-his-luck prize fighter who went by the name Cowboy. The two fell in love and wed on November 25th of 1939. Shortly after the couple enjoyed a honeymoon in California, Cowboy's outlaw past caught up with him. He was arrested for the murder of a San Antonio police officer, Arthur Sinclair, in January of 1940. Uh, and he was quickly found guilty and sentenced to 50 years in a high-security Texas, high security Texas prison. Tony Joe then began to contemplate plans to break out her husband out of the Huntsville prison. Sorry, excuse me. She recruited an accomplice, an ex-con and army deserter named Harold Archie Burks, who claimed to know the layout of the penitentiary. The pair devised a plan to rob a bank in hopes of securing money to aid in breaking Claude Henry out of jail. Two teenagers were persuaded to break into a gun store and steal guns and ammunition for them to use. Joseph P. Calloway was delivering a Ford coupe to a friend when he happened upon Tony Joe and Archie Burks, who were hitchhiking. Unaware of their plan, he offered to give the two a ride. As they drove past... Jennings, Louisiana, Tony, Joe, and Archie robbed Calloway at gunpoint. They proceeded to lock him in the trunk of his car and drive down a country road. The duo planned to use the Ford as a great getaway vehicle. However, they soon decided to pull the car over on a country track. Calloway was ordered out of the car. He was then ushered into a field and told the strip as Henry wanted to change of clothes for her husband when they broke him out of prison. Callaway was then shot once in the head with a 32 caliber revolver and died at the scene. When they reached Camden, Arkansas, Archie became concerned about how far Tony Joe would go to break her husband out of prison and left her taking the car. Tony Joe returned to Shreve by bus where she sought refuge with her aunt, Irma, and told her she had murdered a man near Lake Charles, Louisiana. The aunt contacted her brother, who was a Louisiana state trooper, and Tony Joe was arrested. She was later interviewed by a Shreveport police officer during which she confessed to the murder and disclosed the location of the body. Her first trial was held from March 27th to the 29th in 1940 at Claiborne Courthouse. Because of Tony Joe's good looks, the possibility of the death penalty, and the severity of the charges, trial gained much press coverage. She claimed that Burks was the one who fired the fatal shot, but after deliberating for six hours, the jury convicted her and sentenced her to death by hanging. Burks, too, was later convicted and sentenced to death. Tony Joe appealed and was granted a new trial on the grounds that publicity surrounding the trial prejudiced the outcome. The second trial took place in February of 1941. Unlike in the first trial, Burks took the stand and testified against Tony Joe. After an hour of deliberation, she was again convicted and sentenced to death. She again appealed and was again granted a new trial. The third trial was held in January of 1942. Tony Joe was again convicted and sentenced to death. She appealed, but this time her appeal was denied. An appeal to the governor, Sam H. Jones, for clemency also failed. While Tony Joe was incarcerated at Lake Charles Prison, she was befriended by Father Wayne Richard, head of a local Catholic parish, who would eventually baptize her. During the time Tony Joe was being tried, Louisiana changed its method of execution from hanging to death by electrocution. The sentence being carried out on November 28, 1942, in the basement of Colasco Parish Courthouse. The portable electric chair was later used at Burks' execution in March of 1943. The district attorney was Gerriton T. Hawkins of Lake Charles. Father Richard was present at her execution and would officiate her burial days later. She is buried at the Orange Grove Cemetery in Lake Charles. Four days prior to her execution, Claude Henry escaped from prison to see his wife one last time and was recaptured in Beaumont, Texas. Soon after, he was paroled due to ill health. Henry was shot to death by a cafe owner on July 15, 1945, in Dallas, while out on parole. 75 years later, courthouse workers say they can still feel the presence of Tony Joe. Legend has it that her restless spirit remains trapped within the very courthouse that witnessed her trials and ultimate demise. Over the years, many courthouse workers reported eerie occurrences, including the sensation of being watched, unexplained cold spots, and strange noises echoing through the halls. Some claim to have smelled a distinct scent of burning hair and perfume, which they attribute to Tony Joe's execution. People have reported seeing the ghost of Tony Joe Henry wandering the halls dressed in her best clothes and carrying a handbag. Others have reported hearing screams or feeling a sudden chill in the air as they enter the room where the electric chair was once located. Among the ghostly happenings at the Kolesku Courthouse, employees have reported doors mysteriously locking on their own and office equipment malfunctioning without any apparent cause. It is said that these disruptions often occur during a high stress period, uh, adding to the belief that Tony Gio's spirit may be intentionally meddling with everyday life to make it more difficult for the courthouse employees. Trent Cremillion, who works in the mortgage department at Courthouse, says, well if something goes missing at the office or something gets misplaced, it's always an automatic blame on Tony Joe. One of Trent's coworkers, Jamie Raw, says, sometimes our front door as you come into the mortgage department will just lock. And it's always Tony Joe.
2: Oh, we see him a little sleepy spike, Mr. Nico. So, Mom, this is Nico on Chris's lab on Business Online. Um, do me a favor, move for your screen. Ah! You got you? I'm not leaving yet. Move what? Uh, move your screen that way. You notice what we look like we have over there? Okay. Just making sure.
1: Hi. I have no idea.
2: You see where the, the hat is? Yeah. It looks like a shadow figure on this
1: side of the hat. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Somebody's creeping on us. Barry.
2: <laughs> I just need to verify that it really was the jacket and not something
1: <laughs> there. Yep, just
2: the jacket. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're good now. Any questions? Sorry.
1: Patrick says, oh, this is basically a cryptid. Yes, he is. That checks out. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, he
2: is.
1: Uh, And, yes, the Tony Joe story does sound like a bit of a movie plot, I will agree there. But. We're good. All right, so now we're going to
0: go
2: to New Orleans because we can't do a Louisiana show without New Orleans. Our New Orleans. <laughs> New Orleans. New Orleans. All right. So we're going to um, divert into the heart of historic New Orleans. In 1918, a French wine salesman named Arnaud Chesnev, uh decided to jump into the thriving New Orleans restaurant industry. At his time here in New Orleans, Arnaud observed the deep-pocketed people of the city dropping big money at high-end restaurants. The result was Arnaud. It was an extremely profitable enterprise, which quickly invested into further expansions of, excuse me, of the popular establishment. Arnaud purchased 13 other buildings around the restaurant, including brothels, opium dens, and abandoned structures, and used the space to expand. Today, it's one of four restaurants in the world serving authentic Creole cuisine, collectively known as the Grand Dame. Not only does not has the largest kitchen in the city, but it's also the biggest restaurant in New Orleans. In addition to the large seating capacity, the restaurant also has 14 private dining rooms, a massive bar, and a Mardi Gras museum. Because they could. Because they could. Feathers, glitter. Yeah. you checked out. Yes. Yeah. Don't expect to come out of there not trying to. And unfortunately for Arnott, prohibition was pumped the brakes on his business, and being a former wine salesman, Count was not going to let legality get in the way of his cultural traditions. tradition. He circumvented the laws by offering his customers coffee they couldn't get anywhere else. He used his private dining rooms and hidden backroom bars as safe spaces where his customers could drink freely. Eventually, the long nose of the law sniffed him out, and while well, he was arrested and his restaurant was shut down and padlocked and he fought the allegations in court and he won. Just in time for the end of prohibition. Arnold's really took off during the 1930s. It became the leading restaurant in New Orleans, leaving the competition far behind in its wake. The city's business class made, their go-to, made it their go-to spot for work lunches and Friday night dinners. It was a must for out-of-towners who came to Arnold's for the taste of the real New Orleans. Arnaud had over 50 items on the menu, including nine different preparations of oysters and 15 different styles of potato dishes. He wanted the menu to appeal to both foodies and the casual diner alike. After the devastation of World War II, we had to attract a different type of customer, as Europe was in shambles, the well-off decided to leave their war-torn country and traveled close. The unique culture of New Orleans and the French Quarter attracted many expats, Looking to brighten up up after the darkness of war, the city became
0: an international tourist
2: destination, and Arnaud was on the list of the must-see establishments. (laughs) Unfortunately, Count Arnaud's health was in decline, and he passed away in 1948, just a few months before his 72nd birthday. His daughter Germaine took over, and despite her boisterous personality, she ran Arnaud's like a well-oiled machine. She was known for her heavy handed tactics, which were the result of her desire to uphold her father's reputation. Even though she didn't have the business oriented personality the one needed to run a restaurant, a new theater. And Jermaine used her experiences on stage to give her the motivation to keep the ship afloat. In nineteen seventy eight, however, Jermaine sold the restaurant to the Cash Brand family. While Jermaine didn't really want to sell it, the results are also all time Excuse me. -hmm. Germaine needed the money to remain financially solvent, and she received offers from several businessmen who wanted to purchase the restaurant. She settled on Archie Catherine. Archie reminded her of her father. They had the same initials. They smoked the same cigars, had similar features, and spoke French fluently. Archie knew how to run a business. He had been running hotels in Cairo, New York, and New Orleans for decades. By the time he bought Arnaz, it was beginning to fall apart. He restored the restaurant to its original grandeur. He revitalized the original furnishings from the chandeliers to the tables to the chairs all the way down to the ceiling fans. Arnaz is now the fourth generation of the Casperan Management. The restaurant has survived Hurricane Katrina, which was one of the first restaurants to actually reopen after the storm.
0: They've been offering
2: the full menu upon reopening. Arnaud's is one of the foreground dance along with Bouchard, antones, and gallatori. The three these French border restaurants all serve authentic Creole cuisine. Many say there are no other restaurants in the world that can match the cuisine that is found in the grand dame. Now, there is one thing that Arnaud has to offer that uh, could be considered quite unique and even amongst its closest peers. Behind some of the best cuisine in town are some of the spookiest goats that New Orleans has to offer. Of course, the Count himself is there. He's been spotted wearing his favorite tuxedo while patiently observing the restaurant's operations. He prefers to stand in the far left corner of the main dining room, appearing to many just to be another member of the staff. But despite the fact that he died in 1948, he still runs the restaurant from the afterlife. He doesn't like something, he's going to make sure he gets sick. He's been known to rearrange the silverware and furniture to suit his liking. While the Casperans are the rightful alive owners, it seems Arnard is still trying to run the show. His daughter, Journain, is also lingering in the restaurant, but she keeps an eye on the Mardi Gras Museum that houses some of her favorite dresses. He has some staff who will actually claim to see her had a misty apparition floating around the museum. She'd also been spotted coming out of the ladies' room, only to walk through another wall as if it wasn't there. In line with her lively personality, she tends to be the spirit since most likely to startle. but yes. Aside from the spirits of the restaurant's first family, our ninth seems to have a few others lingering about as well. On one New Year's Day, the restaurant's no-nonsense CPA was conducting the restaurant's annual year-end inventory, in the Richfilayer Bar. This is one of the oldest structures dating back to the late 1700s. Alone, he was counting bottles on the bar, and he reported a dramatic drop in temperature that emanated from the end of the bar near the street entrance. With the hair on the back of his neck bristling, he immediately exited. The chilly atmosphere in the bar can probably be attributed to a disappointed opium dead regulars who checked, on, excuse me, checked in one day only to find out that they had been displaced by the town's purchase of that building. Needless to say, those regulars were less than pleased about the loss of their favorite home. So if you want your Cajun food with a sight of spirits, this is where we're going.
1: I want to go to Arnaud. <laughs> I do too. Yep. So.
2: Yes, I am waiting. Yes, just a
1: little bit.
2: Sister wee nick. Uh.
1: I know we just had dinner before we went online.
2: Well, I was so just but... thinking of some uh, F2000. Yeah, say. Okay. Mm. I
1: can really a for that. I'm getting hands right now. Oh, awesome. big Okay, so we need to go to Louisiana. Mm. Okay. Uh, speaking of, we'll need a place to stay, of course. Yes,
2: because so. we can't go to any of these places, but I actually have a place with sleep that's
1: haunted. Yeah, yeah. So we got, we got some, you. We got you. We got options. We got you. So once you've polished off your fine Cajun dining, you might be ready to call the night. Or not, it is New Orleans, but... Eventually. Eventually, but, yeah. For that, we have a couple of options, and the first is right around the corner as we roll into the Dauphin Orleans Hotel. Well, the hotel itself opened on August 15th of 1969. The site of the Dauphin Orleans has a history that can be traced back to 1775, and traces of this long history can be found throughout the hotel today. One of the most notorious businesses to reside on the property was May Bailey's Place, a famed bordello that opened in 1857. May Bailey's Place was the city's first licensed brothel, as well as its most popular and prosperous. May Bailey's original operating license can still be seen on the hotel bar, appro- appropriately, appropriately named May Bailey's Place. It named the hotel bar after it. Makes sense. It checks out. Why not? And and there is a red light that burns above the bar as an homage to this chapter of the Dauphin Orleans past. On a less sultry note, before the brothel days, this is the site where the artist John James Audubon painted his famous Birds of America series from 1821 to 1822. The DeFaughan Orleans is not the first hotel to stand at this site. Another structure, now known as the Herman House, was once the site of Samuel Herman's manor, which opened in 1834. The structure was built using brick, sand, and cypress, and was by all accounts well appointed. Unfortunately for Samuel Herman, he ended up losing his fortune and home in the English cotton market crash of 1837. The structure remains today the part of the Dauphin Orleans, but for a number of years between the two hoteliers, it is said that this house was also the site of a rough-and-tumble brothel, the White Elephant. Here, the women were ruthless and notoriously feared, say, in one of the 16 Herman guest house rooms as a part of the Dauphin Orleans Hotel. Much of the hotel has managed to survive horrible fires, war, and storms. The hotel has changed hands multiple times and has hosted countless guests in all of its years. Some of the individuals who have lived, worked, or visited the site over the years appear to still be living at the hotel. We use that term loosely. And mm-hmm. yeah. Although there weren't any Civil War battles fought in New Orleans, Confederate soldiers often found themselves seeking reprieve at the city's many bordellos, like May Bailey so it's not surprising that some of these boys would still be hanging around. There is one soldier in particular that is seen wandering the courtyard. To many, he is known as the Worried General, but paranormal investigators who have had the opportunity to check out the site think that his name is just simply Eldridge. It's not too surprising that the Confederate soldier isn't the only one lingering around in the vicinity of Maine Bailey's. According to the hotel manager, this is the most active section of the Lafayette Orleans Hotel. Bartenders have seen bottles and bar stools moving around on their own, and they have even encountered one of the working girls from the brothel days. People describe her as the whimsical woman as she dances and sways through the bar. Of all the spirits that linger on around May Bailey, there is one that is more tragic than most. Millie Bailey was the little sister of May and hated living the brothel life. She finally met and fell in love with a soldier in 1861. He proposed and Millie was going to lead the life of her dreams. She lovingly set to work sewing her wedding dress, caressing and admiring her work as she neared its completion. Tragically, her fiancé was shot dead in a gambling brawl and Millie never had the chance to wear the dress to the altar. That's not to say that she never wore it, though. Millie did often wear the dress around her sister's brothel. Guests have reported seeing Millie in her lace wedding dress standing near her sister's former establishment. So if you're looking for a spooky place to stay in New Orleans, the Defon Orleans is one of the options at your disposal, but it is far from the only one. All
2: right, so if the Defon is not where you're up for going, I can offer you the Andrew Jackson Hotel in the French Quarter. This was the site that was first developed as a boarding school for boys in 1792, housing many children that had been orphaned by yellow fever. In 1794, fires raged through the city, claiming many structures. With some of the reports stating that the school went up in flames with five young boys inside. In the aftermath of the fire, the site became the home of the federal courthouse until the late 1800s. The hotel took its name from events that occurred at the courthouse in 1815. General Andrew Jackson, later the seventh president, was held in contempt of court in the wake of the Battle of New Orleans at the conclusion of the War of 1812. The courthouse was demolished in 1890 and replaced with the building that houses the hotel today. The hotel itself has a long history that includes ghosts and paranormal activity. Due to the site's history as a boarding school and orphanage of many costumes revolve around children. <coughs> there are guests at the hotel who claim they have seen the ghosts of children wandering the halls, while others have heard them playing inside the hotel and inside the hotel's courtyard when there are not any children around. Lunch reports tend to originate from the second floor, when the phenomenon such as uh, disembodied footsteps and doors opening and shutting by themselves. Our mom, the young boy ghost, is thought to have either been pushed or jumped from the second story balcony. He likes to hang out in we're 208, and he's rather playful, so don't expect to get much sleep stay in this room. He's known to wake up guests laughing and even pushing them out of bed. Aside from the children, there's a rather helpful spirit of the housekeeper that seems to be lingering around. This spirit was still working hard, cleaning rooms and plucking pillows. While the guests do not encounter this entity often, members of the living housekeeping staff have often reported feeling washed when they are cleaning rooms, and often their work will get rearranged if it's not quite perfect in the opinion of the perfecting uh, spirit. Finally, some guests believe they've witnessed the apparition of General Andrew Jackson himself. He, <coughs> excuse me. He's been spotted time and again wandering around the second floor of the hotel. But many question why Andrew Jackson would choose to return to the side of the old courthouse where he was charged with contempt of court. Well, that may be the is just someone looking like Jackson, or perhaps Jackson is still miffed at the charges and the $1,000 fine he had to pay as a result. New Orleans has no shortage of accommodations for you to stay in. If you want to hear about some others, go back and check out our Haunted Hotels episode from August 3rd of 2020, where we chatted up in the Pavilion Hotel the Hotel Provincial, and the Bourbon Orleans Hotel.
1: <laughs> so that does wrap up our episode for this evening. Yes. And, uh, you know, if, uh, if you want some more stories from Louisiana, uh, as uh, Beth mentioned, we did talk about those other hotels in our Haunted Hotels episode but we had also visited Louisiana previously during our American Cryptids episode, which was on February 28th of
0: 2022. We
1: talked about the Lulu, right? I think so, yep. Yeah. Yep. The Yep. The Spirits of the Sporting World on January 31st of 2022, Now that was the Superdome. Yes. Then uh, Erie Paddles, uh, which was, that is not the right date for that, September 13th that twenty twenty one probably. That was a great episode. I like doing the Yuri Paddles one. You might need to do a part two soon. But I a part two started. But anyways, yes. And I don't remember which one that was. We did also of course um do Haunted Cemeteries, which I think was uh the um cemetery Marie-Liveau. Yeah, Marie Laveau. So but yeah, that was uh back in the day, October twelfth of twenty twenty. Almost three years ago. Yep. We've been doing this for a hot minute. Oh, oh. And nice somebody's ready to call it a night.
2: Somebody's been...
1: Turning into a pumpkin. Yeah. Somebody's still recovering from her sinus infection.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, ladies and gentlemen, we hope that you enjoyed this evening's show. So,
2: which is part three, and we're actually going to be talking about cemeteries, burials of uh, witches this next time. Oh,
1: number two was mostly as well. It seems like when we talk about witches, it's usually it's revolving around which witches burial sites. Yes. Yeah. Which, I mean, that'll be it. But anyways, we'll be back in three weeks with Witches Part 3. Uh, and before that, come out and see us. Yes. Yeah. You'll find us everywhere in and about town.
0: Yes. So we got
1: tours all over the place, all across town here. And again, we got the branch museum event uh, that is on Thursday, October twelfth. And then you can find us also at Nightmare Weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the thirteenth, fourteenth, and fifteenth.
0: Yes.
1: So, uh, if you uh, want an easy, easy, go ahead to look up those links. Just go to our website, I have uh, flagged links to both of those events right at the top of our homepage, so you can easily go ahead and uh, check those out. Yes. But, yeah. And we also have Rich
2: Brow Market, the kids in the market at Rich Brow this Thursday. They'll be there selling haunted goodies.
1: Well, Your jewelry. spooky goodies. Spooky jewelry. Yes. So, and that's going to be, yep, this Thursday, September 28th uh, at Rich Brow Brewing at 5 South 20th Street in Chaco Bottom. Yes. And it's, we're going to be there with probably like a half a dozen other amazing vendors, which will... They'll have their various art and handmade crafts and stuff like that. So definitely come on by, check it out. It's going to be fun. Uh, And and on that night, um, if you want to go ahead and catch that football game, there are two Thursday night – Well, wait, maybe not. I don't know. They're going to have Thursday night football at uh, Rich Brown that night too. So you can come by. You can check out all the goodies that we have and uh, the other vendors have, and then you can – grab right a and watch some football. So, Thursday. And they, and they have fest beer out now, so. Because fest beer. So, no. so, yeah. That is all. That is all. I could ramble on if I was. And we're not going to, but
2: we will wish you all <laughs> a good and happy uh, evening, and we will see you in three weeks here on Facebook Live, if not before, in person.
0: Hope to
1: see you sooner. Yes. We'd love to see you sooner. But, Yeah. In the meantime, y'all, good day night. Stay Bye, y'all.